In Colossians 3 and verse 16, we have this command. And that's what it is. It's a command from the Lord. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This verse and the corresponding verse in Ephesians 5 brings before us the subject of what we sing. What we sing as believers, it's clearly outlined for us in this 16th verse. And yet I have to say this very statement itself divides God's people. There are some Christians who will claim that this is a divine mandate for the exclusive use of the Psalms of David in our singing in the church, in public worship. The argument runs like this. According to what is called the regulative principle of worship, that is, we only do that which is commanded by God in Scripture, and all good Reformed believers accept this, but they do differ in its application. Because, for example, the Westminster Standards allow for that which is inferred by the Scriptures. But the argument is, God commands only the singing of the Psalms in public worship. The Psalms are inspired by God, and therefore the Psalms alone form the divine hymnal for the church. Hence, we should only employ Psalms in divine worship, and not hymns. And not poems of human composition. To sing such in public worship, the argument goes, is unacceptable worship. Hymn singing, it is alleged, is not commanded by God and therefore it is not accepted by God as worship. Now that might seem to be an extreme position and I guess in a way it is. But it's held to and has been held to by many in the Christian church for generations. Now this claim to exclusive psalmody is based upon an understanding of the words psalms, hymns and spiritual songs as being the threefold division that exists in the book of Psalms. And advocates of this position will usually point to a document that's known as the Septuagint. Uh, In Latin, it's LXX. And that is actually an Old Testament uh, that is written in Greek. It's a version of the Old Testament written in Greek. And they get this division, Psalms, Hymns and Spiritual Songs, from the Septuagint. Most exponents of exclusive psalmody in public worship will not only reject the use of hymns and poems of human composition, but also the use of instrumental accompaniment. So our brother and when my wife is at the piano, they're out of work as far as those folks are concerned. Why? Because they believe that instruments were part of the temple worship. 
Thus it was part of the ceremonial system which has been fulfilled in Christ. So therefore, no instruments today. Now these various points that are at issue have to be addressed. I can't come to a verse like this and say, well, there are differing opinions on this, so let's jump on over to the next part of the text. I'm going to deal with it. I believe it's important for us not only to do the right things, but to know why we do those things. It's not enough for me to say, well, we believe in singing hymns, period. I've got to have a reason why I believe that. Uh, A reason why I do not take the position that music and singing in the worship of God should only involve the Psalms of David without music. And therefore, in the following messages, and I emphasize that messages be more than one, I want to show you why I believe that the, the, the actual teaching of exclusive psalmody is not the position of the Bible. Now, I don't say this because I want to hurt anyone's feelings or to annoy anyone who might watch this service or listen to the sermon. But this is my position. This is the position of our church. And I believe that it ought to be defended. And if it can't be defended, well then we're really in trouble. So I want to speak about this under a couple of headings at least. This is the one that we'll deal with tonight. There is a claim which has to be examined. There's a claim that must be examined. Now let's look at the text again. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So it has to do with sung worship. It has to do with the singing that we employ in the worship of our God. Let me say at the very start, I am not against the singing of psalms. I'm very much for the singing of psalms. I have a selection of psalms which curiously is accompanied by music. And I listen to it all the time in my car. And the psalms are beautiful. And I love psalms like Psalm 103. O thou my soul bless God the Lord. And all that in me is, be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. Or Psalm 40. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. He took me from a fearful pit and from the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock, establishing my way. You'll notice that those are metrical versions of the Psalms, not as they appear in your Bible, but as they are sung. I love the Psalms. I don't have any problem with Psalm singing. There's a rich heritage there, of course there is, because we're singing largely that which is Scripture. But I do not believe that only Psalms are to be sung. That's the issue. Now, the claim is, from those who take that position... That we must only employ psalms in public worship if we are to have pure worship. This is the argument. 
There's a denomination in Scotland called the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. They're not connected with our denomination. There are some differences. But on their denominational magazine, they have their position right front and center. They believe in, quote, purity of worship, doctrine, and practice. Purity of worship, doctrine, and practice. And implicit in that statement, purity of worship, is the idea that they only sing from the Psalter. It is inferred that the use of uninspired hymns means employing worship that is not pure and therefore is not acceptable to the Lord. Of course, I do not accept that assertion because, first of all, on this earth, there is no such thing as purity of worship. Think about that. There is no pure worship on the earth. You know why? Because we are sinners. We are still in the flesh. So any worship that we bring to the Lord by virtue of the fact that we are this side of heaven is not pure. I think of the high priest Aaron of old. You will note that he had to offer up a sacrifice unto the Lord for, quote, the iniquity of the holy things. In other words, those things that were good and pure and wholesome in themselves. When he would offer them, they were mixed with sin right away. Everything we do is mixed with sin and requires sacrifice. It requires forgiveness. And this includes our worship. Our worship is not pure, except that it is accepted by God if it's offered through the mediation of Christ and his blood. That's what makes our worship acceptable to God. We offer up sacrifices to God, including spiritual sacrifices, and they are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, of course, we should strive for purity. It's no argument to say, well, there's no purity of worship, therefore we should not strive for purity of worship. Of course we should. But just remember that there are people who were spoken of even in the Bible... And they were those who employed the Psalms of David in worship. The Lord Jesus talked about them in Matthew chapter 15. And notice what he said from Matthew 15, verse number 8. From verse 7. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, that's Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Notice this. With their lips, they came before the Lord, they drew near to the Lord, they honoured Him with their mouth and with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. These people used the Psalms in worship. And history records that they actually didn't sing the psalms, they chanted them. And their chanting of the psalms was not in English. It was in the original Hebrew tongue. So if you're going to say you have to use the psalms of David 
you better quickly learn Hebrew. I don't know of any Reformed church that does this, that sings the Psalms in the Hebrew tongue. But the point is, their worship was totally unacceptable to God because it wasn't involving pure hearts. Just because the Psalms are used does not mean that the worship is pure. And there are plenty of psalm-singing churches today and they are compromised in their stand. They compromise on things like the text of Scripture that they use, the versions of the Bible that they use that are not from a pure text. So the idea that using psalms in worship is going to mean you have purity of worship is not correct. There are also, I might say, some people who will have only psalms to be sung in their public worship services. That is to say, on the Lord's Day morning or Lord's Day evening. But when they have unofficial, informal gatherings, young people's meetings and the like, they will often sing hymns and songs of human composition. And my question for such people is, why is that acceptable? Because surely that's worship of God and if it's not the worship of God it's vain repetition and it's taking the Lord's name in vain if you're singing about the Lord you should be worshipping the Lord however there are people who take a very strong position on this there was a minister in Scotland many years ago decades ago by the name of James Begg and there's actually a society uh, that was formed with his name, the James Begg Society, and they're very, very strong on this issue of only singing psalms unaccompanied by music in public worship. Now, people will say, surely psalms only should be sung even in individual praise and worship. And if they do say that, I think they're consistent. But if they say you can sing psalms only in public worship, but you can sing something else at other times, That's inconsistent. Pure worship. But then the claim relates also to public worship. When I look at this, the claim that you must only use the Psalms of David in public praise, in public singing, I ask the question then, why does not the principle that they employ which is the principle that what God does not command must not be used why does that not extend to praying and preaching as well I think that's a very good question and it's a serious point if I can pray using my own words as long as they're in keeping with scripture and I can preach using my own words, yet making sure that the preaching is scriptural, why can I I not sing unto the Lord in humanly composed words? Does that not seem strange? For example, I can pray, and I do this in my public ministry, and in that prayer, say the opening prayer of a service, I could quote words of human composition. A poem, like McShane's Jehovah Said Kenya, or some other thing written by Horatius Bonner, or I could quote Amazing Grace, 
written by John Newton. I could quote that in prayer, and the Lord will accept it. But as soon as I stop praying, just within seconds of that, if I try to sing those words to the Lord, it's unacceptable. Does that make sense? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. But that's the position, if you take it to its logical conclusion. I can use words of human composition to pray to God, but I can't praise God in words of human composition. I have to use the Psalms. I can quote hymns in prayer. I can quote hymns and poems in my preaching, in my sermons. But I must not sing them unto the Lord, otherwise it's false fire. But it is claimed we must only use the words of Scripture and only from the book of Psalms in our singing in the church. So let me ask our brethren who take that position, is that actually what they do? Do they sing the actual words of Scripture? My answer to that is no, they do not. Because the words of the Scripture are in the original in the Hebrew tongue. They do not use the actual words of Scripture in English either, because they wouldn't fit the rhyme for singing. So they are formed into what are called metrical psalms. They follow a common meter, or a long meter, or whatever it happens to be. The psalms are adopted, they are adapted rather, for singing. If you like, they're psalms that have been doctored in order to rhyme. So in actual fact, they're not singing the Scriptures. They're singing paraphrases of Scripture. Of course, that's another issue. If I were to sing a paraphrase of some part of Isaiah or Habakkuk or some other Scripture, that is deemed to be unacceptable. But I can sing paraphrases of the Psalms of David and of Asaph. But there's another serious point here in regard to the public worship. There are tunes that are employed in singing metrical psalms, obviously. There are some beautiful tunes. Crimmond, Effingham, London New. There's various beautiful tunes that we employ in singing the Psalms. Who made those tunes? Those tunes are man-made tunes. They don't come from Scripture. They are tunes of human composition. But I suppose people don't think about things like that. But that is a fact. There's something else that we should note, and this is from the Scripture. Look with me at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And you'll see that the Lord there on the road to Emmaus was speaking to the two. And he began to employ the Scriptures in their conversation. Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses, that's the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament Scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now go on down to verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you when I, while I was yet with you, 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Now, we need to understand that those three, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, is a threefold division of the Old Testament that pertains among the Jews. But the very interesting point that I want to make is that the Psalms here included more than just the Psalms of David and the other Psalmists like Asaph. Because the books of poetry were also part of that section called the Psalms among the Jews. For instance, the Song of Solomon. And it's interesting that it's called that. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And this is the greatest example of that which Solomon wrote. If you go back to 1 Kings, the chapter 4 and verse 32, you will discover that Solomon spake 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Did you know that before? That Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. But you know what the greatest song was? The Song of Solomon, or the Canticles, as it's often called. And you can read Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse number 1, where the Scripture says this, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is the chiefest song. This is the best song that he wrote. Tell me, why is it not sung? If this is the song of songs, and it certainly speaks of Christ our Savior in type, why is it not sung? But there's another thing about the claim that we have to examine. Not only has it to do with pure worship and public worship, but the claim is that Psalms only is that which is prescribed worship. This is what God has prescribed. Now, if this is true, then tell me, why does the Bible reveal worship in various epochs of time which was not restricted to the Psalms? For example, think about the times before the Psalms were written. Before David or Asaph were ever upon the face of the earth. There were songs, and they were sung to the Lord. I'll show you one. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation, and so on. And by the way, this particular song was sung to instrumental accompaniment. Because when you go down to Exodus 15, verse 20, the Bible says that Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. 
What about the worship of the tabernacle? In that era before the temple was ever built. The Psalms of David are undoubtedly very much associated with temple worship. We don't deny that. But there was worship before that. And the Psalms were not employed. Let me give you several examples. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. And read from verse 16. And from thence they went to Beer, that is the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. There they're singing a song. You come further in the Bible, to the book of Judges, and to Judges chapter 5. And there the word of God records, in verse 1, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. And the song continues. This is not one of the Psalms of David. David was not alive yet. This is not one of the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph was not in existence yet. And then you go over to that great chapter that we consulted this morning in reference to the subject of revival. Habakkuk chapter 3. You'll see that verse 1 tells us that it is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonoth. And Shigeonoth simply refers to according to variable songs or tunes. When you go down to the last verse, verse 19, it is addressed to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So here's a song from Habakkuk that is not one of the Psalms. Are you going to tell me that it was not acceptable to the Lord? Come to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 16, we read about the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. What happened when they were put into the stocks with their feet bound in that dungeon? They prayed and they sang praises unto God. We have no indication whether they were singing from the book of Psalms or not. But you will notice that there's some other singing that's mentioned in the New Testament and it's in the book of Revelation. The interesting thing is that this singing has to do with heaven. Don't we want to do what they do in heaven? Wouldn't we want our worship to be as near to the worship of heaven as possible? Well then, turn to Revelation chapter 5, and read from verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the center of heaven. They fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. Those are instruments. And golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood 
out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Notice what the focus of their singing is. It's the death of Christ thou wast slain. It's the blood of Christ that hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. This is how they're singing in heaven. Turn then to Revelation 14, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. And then the next chapter, 15, from verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sung the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are thy ways, thy King of saints. The church in heaven, the church triumphant, sings about the Lamb. They sing about the blood. Not from the Psalms, but a new song. Therefore, the bold assertion that's made... That God has appointed the 150 Psalms of David to be sung by the church in either Old or New Testament eras cannot be proved. No proof exists that all of the Psalms were used in any case in temple worship. As a matter of fact, 55 of the Psalms were given to be sung by Levitical choirs in worship. But the others are listed as prayers. You can consult Psalm 72 verse 20. Because there it speaks of the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, that are ended. There's no evidence anywhere that they were ever sung or ever prescribed for our public singing and worship. Now I've had people say to me, and I'm sure they're sincere, that not believing an exclusive psalmody, not believing that psalms only should be sung without music, that it's not reformed. So they'll say to me, you're not really reformed. You're not truly a reformed church. But of course, many sound and godly men in church history were not of their view. So they must not have been reformed either. Now, of course, many other godly men were believers in Psalms only. But just because they were godly men and good preachers doesn't mean they were right on that issue. Any more than their view of baptism would be right. Because there have been various views on that. And the controversy on baptism has never been solved in the church of Jesus Christ. Of course, for me it has been solved, but that's a different matter altogether. Uh, For some people it hasn't, because they disagree with me. There were some good Presbyterians in the past 
who expressed very strong opposition to singing psalms only. John Eady, Charles Hodge, William Cunningham, great Scots preacher Robert Candlish, wonderful mighty man of God, and James Hamilton, he was probably very good. Hamilton said, you didn't catch that, did you? Hamilton said, believing as I do, that not even the Jew was bound to pray or sing in words wholly biblical, I can far less believe that Christ has left his people under any such bondage. Unquote. Should we sing the Psalms? Yes. Yes, we should sing the Psalms. But just as I read and I preach from the Old Testament as Jesus did, but I also preach from the New Testament with its presentation of full gospel light, so I may sing in the light of New Testament revelation with words that reflect that new era of light. Therefore, I am unconvinced by the claim of the Psalms only advocates. Someone said very eloquently the following, The fullness of truth in the great Christian hymns could not have been written before Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. With the progress in Revelation, the church moved from infancy to maturity and corresponding with her changed experience and privilege came an augmentation in the language of her praise. Our singing, you see, ought to reflect new covenant truth. And so we do praise God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, having spoken of the claim which must be examined, I just want to briefly mention the conduct which must be explained. We'll take another message to deal with most of this, but I just want to touch on it right now. Let me ask this, what is that great truth which causes me to reject the restrictions of exclusive psalmody? Why do I and others of our ilk sing the hymns and the songs that we do along with the psalms? Why do we do that? Well, the first part of Colossians 3.16 supplies the answer to that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, obviously, the word of Christ, as I've pointed out in another message, includes all of the Old Testament, including the Psalms. But the word of Christ is the whole Bible. And it includes the New Testament. Therefore, the doctrine of Christ, of his gospel, of salvation through Christ, is that which is to dwell in abundance in us. It is to be at home in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell. It, it means be at home in you. We are to be gospel-focused people. Now, the three great features of our worship in public are, of course, prayer, praise, and preaching. Easy to remember. 
This is something we do in our services all the time. Prayer. We have opening prayers. We have closing prayers. We have prayer uh, before the preaching. Sometimes we have actual prayer meetings. But we have prayer. And we have preaching. We preach the word. We don't just preach about the word. We don't just preach about Christ. We preach the word and we preach Christ. And there's praise. Praise that is sung praise. Of course there's praise in our prayers. We offer praise to God in prayer. But we praise the Lord by singing and by music. Now think about these three. What does our praying have as its focus? Where is our praying focused when we call upon the Lord? Well, it is focused, if it's true prayer, upon the person and work of Christ first and foremost. This is a great New Testament truth, isn't it? When we pray, how do we pray? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And this is what we must always keep before us when we come before the throne of grace. Hebrews 10 from verse 19. Having therefore brethren. It doesn't say you can have this or you could or you might. It says having therefore brethren boldness. It's really referring to freedom and liberty. To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is tabernacle language. We are New Testament priests. Drawing near to the Lord. We do so with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Christ is our Savior. He's our Redeemer. We're focused upon His bloodshedding. We're focused upon His high priestly person and His ministry. And yet when we think about our praying, is our praying restricted to inspired utterances? In other words, when I come before the Lord, am I restricted only to the words of Scripture? Is that to be my understanding of prayer? That I'm only to pray the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is actual Scripture. So when I pray, the only thing I'm allowed to use is, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so on. Is that true? Of course it's not true. Our praying is not restricted to inspired utterances. Our praying is not restricted to the words of Scripture. Yes, we base our prayers on Scripture. Our prayers can be laced with scriptures because we bring the promises of the Lord before him. We plead those promises. We bring his word to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. But our praying is not restricted to the actual words of the Bible. We pray in our own words, don't we? We pray using our own words. Just from our hearts. When we have our times of prayer... We're not there to be examining one another. Oh, that was a good prayer. That wasn't a good prayer. People are just praying from their hearts as they feel the Lord would have them to pray. And we're all saying Amen to that. 
But they're not just quoting scripture. Oh yeah, it's good to quote scripture in your prayer, but that's not what prayer essentially is. Prayer is asking God for things on the basis of his word. It's not just worship. It's not just invocation. It also involves making actual requests of the Lord. But we don't just use the scriptures. We base our prayers on scripture. Our prayers are scriptural in that sense. But we're using our own words, words of human composition. That's our praying. What about our preaching? Our preaching is focused on Christ and his atoning work. And if it's not, there's a problem. Behind me on the wall, I think it still says it, we preach Christ crucified. That's what we do. This is our profession, and this, thank God, is our practice. We preach Christ crucified. In other words, all the preaching has that as its central plank. And I preach from the Old Testament, as you know, and I apply the New Testament truth to all of it. But while my preaching, I trust, is scripturally grounded, it's not restricted to biblical quotes. I don't just stand up here and read the scriptures and make no comment and don't use any words of my own, words of human composition. Of course I don't do that. That wouldn't be preaching. That would just be reading. So my preaching is scriptural, yes. We have biblical quotations. Hopefully my, my sermons are full of the Bible. But I employ my own words. I put it into an understandable form and bring it to the people. That's our preaching. It's to be scriptural. But it doesn't have to be restricted to the actual words of scripture in every part. See where I'm going with this? Our praying, our preaching, why should our praising of God be any different? You see, our praise of Almighty God must have, it should have, the full New Testament revelation of Christ and His work as its focus. What I'm saying is, our singing ought to reflect New Covenant truth. We don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament with an understanding of what was said in the Old Testament. This is true. But when we offer praise to the Lord, we do so by Jesus Christ. You see Hebrews 13 verse 15? By Him, that's by Christ. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. By Him. Our praise is offered by Him. In prayer, believers are not restricted to the language of the old economy. If we had time, we could go to Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2. We could examine the praises of Mary, the mother of the Lord. We could examine the words of Elizabeth. And we could examine also the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. 
And though they were using Old Testament terminology, the words that they used were not the words of Scripture, they were their own words. They were not bound only to the book of Psalms. And our preaching, likewise, no such restriction is in force. I use both testaments. I like to say this because my pastor taught it to me. God speaks with one mouth, but that one mouth has two lips. One lip is the Old Testament, the other lip is the New Testament. And together God speaks with one mouth. I like that. In our preaching we're not restricted to the words of Scripture per se. Our preaching should be scriptural, scripturally based, scripturally founded. But we're preaching from both Testaments. We're not just preaching from the Old Testament. We're preaching from the Old Testament in the light of the New. From the vantage point of a full revelation of gospel light and truth. Tell me, why if our praying is like that, and our preaching is like that, should our singing be any different? Think about this. The language of the book of Psalms Examine it for yourself. It's very much the language of anticipation, not realization. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that when the psalmist is speaking about certain things, he's looking forward. He is anticipating the future work of Christ. It's not the language of realization. What I'm saying is that the basic message of the book of Psalms is this. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will do this, this, and this. The Psalms are part of the progressive revelation of truth, which culminates in the full light of the New Testament coming of the Savior. See, the point is, progressive revelation, all the way through the Old Testament, leads on to a full and a final revelation. What is that? It's the message of the New Testament. And so just as in our preaching, I'm not restricted to the message that the Lord is coming. In my preaching, I proclaim Christ has come. We're on this side of the cross. And so in our singing, it should be the same. I know the answer will be, but the doctrine of Christ and the gospel is in the Psalter. But you'll also find, will you not, that the ceremonial system of worship is very prominent there. Because it's Old Testament language. Let me give you a good example before we finish the message tonight. In the book of Psalms, on three occasions I want to show you. The language was the language of anticipation. Psalm 51 Verses 18 and 19. Psalm 51, 18 and 19. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. We don't, we don't have burnt offerings today. We don't offer bullocks upon the altar. This was 
the language of the Old Testament ceremonial system. Now, of course, people will say, ah, but we can now look at that in the light of the New Testament because we're there. This is true. But it doesn't change the fact that the language of this psalm is anticipatory. It's looking forward. David still lived in a time when the sacrificial system was in existence. We don't. We don't offer burnt offering and hold burnt offering. We don't offer bullocks upon the altar. Now go over to Psalm 66 and verse 15. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Do we do that? Of course we don't. Because Christ has come. But when David was writing the psalm, he was anticipating. He was using Old Testament language. The same is true of Psalm 81 from verse 3. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. You read the book of Colossians, you find that the new moons and the feast days, they're done away with in Christ because they're part of the ceremonial system. Now, it will be argued that we're now viewing the Psalms from a New Testament standpoint, so we are enabled to see the significance of these truths in New Testament light. Granted. But couldn't it be said that God might well have framed the Old Testament in such a way that the New Testament would never have needed to be written? But he didn't. We have both Testaments and neither is to be neglected. The fact is the New Testament is an era of greater light and privilege for God's people. And our singing as well as our preaching should be a reflection of this. We may, I would say we must base our hymns of praise on the New Testament scriptures. I will come back to this subject next time in the will of the Lord. There's a lot to be said about it. But my main concern is that we do what God wants us to do. That we worship as the Lord has established we ought to worship. And that we worship Christ in spirit and in truth according to New Testament revelation. I think it's a great shame that many believers never get to sing about the name of Jesus. They don't. They literally never use the name that was given to him at his incarnation in their public worship. And we'll speak to that next time in the will of the Lord. So may God bless his word to our hearts.